Hey there, and welcome to a brand new episode of Show Me the Crypto. This week, we chat with Matt Lysing, who is the co-founder of Decential. He also wrote the book Out of the Ether, an incredibly intelligent guy with a lot of information about this space. Alf, what did you think of this episode? Honestly, Matt is such a wealth of knowledge. He's been in the space for a long time. He first heard of Bitcoin in 2013 and ended up writing about it, covering it at Bloomberg. He was one of the earliest reporters to be writing about uh, everything in the crypto space. And talking to him about everything he's covered, writing his book, his interview process, and everything he's learned along the way about Ethereum and, and the founders and Vitalik's story and all that was so interesting for me. Yeah, we broke down a lot of different topics, some spicy questions like, is there a rivalry between the authors who have written Ethereum style books? You'll hear what he has to say on that. And then we jump into some current events at the end of the conversation talking about the the banking situation the last month in the US, Balaji's $1 million bet. This is an interview you don't want to miss. We hope you enjoy it. Show me the crypto. Show me the crypto! Show me the crypto! In a world on the brink of disruption, two men will bring you clarity by interviewing some of the most intelligent and influential names in the blockchain world. Welcome to Show Me the Crypto with your hosts, Wade Patterson and Ulf Lonegren. Well, hi there, and welcome to Show Me the Crypto. My name is Wade Patterson. And I'm Off Lonegren. We're a couple of friends from Canada who love learning about cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, and we're happy you're along for the ride. Whether you're a crypto virgin or you know your way around the block, we hope our interviews with some of the most intelligent and influential people in the blockchain space help deliver you with value. And on this episode, we're joined by Matt Lysing, a former Bloomberg reporter and co-founder of Decentral. Bitcoin landed on Matt's radar in 2013, but he shrugged off interest until 2015 when he began to understand the power of blockchain technology more fully. In 2020, Matt published Out of the Ether, which documents Ethereum's history and the $55 million heist that almost destroyed it all. Decentral is focused on humanizing the people who are at the forefront of the crypto industry through films, a documentary series, and journalism. Matt, welcome to Show Me the Crypto. Hey guys, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to dive into a few different topics with you, but yeah. I want to start in kind of a maybe a random very specific place. And in 2020, you were on Pomp's podcast. And at that time, you said that one thing you really appreciate about the Ethereum community is the idealism. And you said that to be a reporter, you have to sort of have this belief that you're going to change the world. And considering you were a Bloomberg reporter for 17 years, at what point did you develop the belief that you were going to change the world? Oh man, you guys need to research. I'm impressed and uh, using my own words. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I, uh, I don't know. I, 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 might, I might soften that a little bit today. Uh, I don't know that a reporter has to believe they can change the world, but I think they should <laughs> understand that they have the ability to change the world. Um, there, there are some, a lot of cases in the history of, of the really strong journalism that does change public opinion, like the Pentagon Papers and the Vietnam War, or, um, you know, lots of other 
examples that, that we could talk about. I, I think um, what I was getting at there uh, it is was that it was really a breath of fresh air to to sort of get immersed into the crypto world and meet a lot of people who do want to make the world a better place. And they're they're doing that from a genuine place. They're not being cynical. They're not doing it for money. Um, and, and I really found that refreshing, especially after reporting on Wall Street for a long time and going through the financial crisis, uh, which, you know, brought the global economy to its knees um, through just stupidity and greed. And, and then, you know, so I just really kind of, I think, gravitated towards people in crypto. And especially when I was reporting on my book, I got to know um, the founders of Ethereum and the folks that helped make that all happen, you know, pretty well. And I just came away really impressed. And so I do think that that is, uh, that is something that I think exists in crypto. I think a lot of people in this industry think they can change the world and they already have changed the world and it's continuing. So I guess, um, you know, maybe I was getting a little carried away with myself back then and I'm on Palm's podcast, but I, I think reporters are important, but I think, you know, what we're doing is we are telling you the stories of, of the people who are making things happen. You know, it's like very rarely is, does the reporting kind of become the story? You know, there are other examples, like I said, like the Pentagon Papers or Watergate or a lot of things that you could point to. But I think um, in my own, what I try to do is just be really true to the source of the story and the characters in there and, and do my best to convey their story honestly and, and with the respect that it deserves. And that's, that's something that I think helped me along my career um, because not everybody in journalism does that. Do you think that maximalism in the space surrounding primarily Bitcoiners and then those who are more open either, you know, into ETH and call them ETH maxis if you want, or just those who are more accepting of, you know, all crypto and everything that blockchain technology is doing. Do you think that when we talk about, you know, having that ideal around changing the world for the better, do you think that maximalism hurts that, you know, there's people, the, the, those true Bitcoiners who that's all they stand by. Do you think they're sort of holding back on changing the world in a better way? Or do you think through their eyes that Bitcoin is the positive direction in changing the world? And I ask that only because obviously Ethereum and, and these other uh, blockchains bring so much more to the space and how you can build and everything that's happened since uh, you know the start of Ethereum. So I'm curious to get your take on that. Yeah, I, I think maximalism in any form is not really a good look. For crypto, um, I have never really understood why Bitcoin maximalists think the be-all and end-all of, you know, a distributed peer-to-peer censorless or censorship-resistant system is Bitcoin. You know, there, there's so many, like you mentioned, there's so many other ways that this new system can be implemented, like Ethereum, Avalanche, Polkadot, you know, name whatever other smart contract kind of blockchain you want. Um, so I think that I, I think a lot of it is, is just people getting worried about their bags, you know, and just wanting to pump the price of Bitcoin because maybe they've put all their money into it. Um, because from a rational point of view, I don't understand why like Bitcoin is awesome as a 
payments network, right? It's, it's a global payment network that can't be stopped by corporations or countries. That's amazing. But that's really all it is. And, and that's not to slight it, but when Ethereum came around, people realized, oh, we could do so much more with this. There can be applications for finance. There can be applications for art, for music, for culture, um, you know, and it just really kind of opened the door to so many new things. So it kind of baffles me. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's not a great look, but I don't think that, uh, I think there are loud voices, but I don't think there are like the majority of voices either. And I think, um, as time goes on, you know, the, the current thing about maximalists on the Bitcoin side is they were dinging, uh, Ethereum for unlocking, you know, all the staked ETH that, that is behind the proof of stake network now with the Shanghai upgrade. Uh, that just happened and, and ETH prices, like they, they were like, oh, you, you know, you're going to see everything crash and, and they were being very negative. ETH is actually up, you know? And so sure. like they, they did the proof of stake merge back in September without a hitch. It was almost boring, you know? And that's like a huge technical advancement right there that they did in real time that was uh, executed perfectly. And it's like, so I just watching this, I'm like, whoa, what's the next thing maximalists are going to get upset about? And then let's just watch the Ethereum community just roll it out and just do like they've been doing, you know? And it's like, I just don't see that there's a lot of there there uh, in that opinion. And and I love getting your take on that. But I do want to just bring it back to now your story a bit in regards to crypto. So I'm curious, you know, you you discovered Bitcoin in 2013, but you didn't really dive deep into it for for some time. Can you sort of tell us that journey in more detail from when you first learned and heard about Bitcoin to to then how it became a part of your life and, and where you are today in the space? Yeah, I remember having, you know, somewhat drunken arguments with my friends about Bitcoin back then, uh, you know, they were in San Francisco and I just didn't understand how digital currency, you know, I, I was like, it's just ones and zeros. How can that have value? You know, I didn't understand it and I dismissed it. Um, and it wasn't even like I was even considering investing or anything like that. I just, I just didn't get it from a, a practical sort of technological point of view because I didn't understand the blockchain um, breakthrough that had happened. And so that's what took me a couple of years. Uh, it was in 2015 after I read a story in The Economist about the blockchain that it, the light bulb went off. And I'm like, oh, it's, oh, it's really, you know, it's a global network of, of computers. It's peer to peer. Um, there's no middleman. And I have been reporting on Wall Street for a long time at that point. And I was like, well, Wall Street's just a network as well. You know, it's got investors on one side and banks on the other. And they're transacting all the time and every day. And, you know, trillions of dollars is flowing through all of this infrastructure. So, what's the difference? You know, I didn't see that there was much difference. And so that's how it really sort of made sense to me. Um, but even at that point, like Ethereum had just launched and I, I didn't even really know about Ethereum when I started covering blockchain on my beat. It was more about like, there was this company called Digital Asset Holdings. It was, uh, the CEO was Blythe Masters, who had been a really big deal at JP Morgan. And Banks were starting to experiment with this technology in like what came to be known as like enterprise blockchain, where you've got a known set of participants in a group and they trade directly with each other. There's no coin involved, there's no mining, but it's like it could really 
like vastly improve the efficiency of the transactions. And so that was the state of like Wall Street experimenting with blockchain in 2015. And then once Ethereum kind of grew in prominence and the DAO hack really sort of, I think, brought it, you know, like a lot of attention and, and uh, a lot of other stuff, you know, just kind of brought it kind of into focus. That's when people, I think, started realizing that, oh, here now we have a whole new um, platform that we can use these smart contracts. And that that's when it started really to take off. And, you know, in a couple of years, we'd have DeFi summer and all sorts of things would start happening. In terms of when you're working at Bloomberg, what was that conversation like in terms of, like you just mentioned, when you're covering blockchain on your beat? And I heard in another interview, you were talking about like, that was something that you brought forward, that idea. But like, there's got to be a, <laughs> it's a pretty big jump or a level of trust of whoever approved that, the editor or somebody being like, sure, yeah, you can start covering that. I mean, what was that like? Did you have a bit of a short leash in terms of where your range was that you were able to focus on? Or was it a simple conversation they trusted you to run with it? Yeah, um, it, you know, on the one hand, it was easy. And on the other hand, it was very difficult because like my beat at that point had evolved into something called market structure. And then like, how do markets work or not work? Like, where are the problems? Um, you know, what's regulation doing to update markets? Um, things like that. And so I pitched it in that vein. It's like, look, blockchain is a potential huge market structure update to how Wall Street and finance works because now you can create these networks. And whereas, you know, traditional finance, in some markets, like you might be waiting weeks to have your transactions like verified and, cl and cleared, right? And closed. Uh, in, other, in other more common markets, it's funny, maybe two or three days. With the blockchain, implementation, you can cut that to minutes, you know? And so time is money. And that, that's a huge, huge driver for Wall Street. So that was my pitch. And that, that went over pretty well because my, my bosses understood that. But then I started bringing them stories. And like the first story I ever did got spiked, which, you know, is pretty rare. That means it, they, they killed it. Like I had done all the work and written it. And it was, I don't know if you guys were around them, but it was, um, the, the debate was, uh, it's, it's blockchain, not Bitcoin. And that was like, that was the big thing that it was like, people were starting to move in the direction I've kind of described where it's like, the, no, the blockchain is the really interesting technology here. Bitcoin is fine, but let's use the blockchain technology to do all sorts of things in other industries. And so it was a bit of a tempest in the teapot kind of argument at the time. A lot of it was on Twitter, of course. And so I talked to people on both sides and my editors were like, this is stupid. <laughs> what? <laughs> What are we doing here? You know, like you got to do better. And so I was like, all right, I got really mad because, you know, I don't like to see a lot of work go down the drain. But um, yeah, so it was, you know, not everything just sailed right through. And it was that learning process with my editors and people up top in the organization that, that was difficult um, because, you know, it's a lot of education. And I went through a lot of different editors in my years there. And every time I'd have to like, okay, now I got to train a new editor on like, what's, what's blockchain and what's a smart contract. And, you know, so, and then I'll, I'll say also just lastly, at a high level at Bloomberg, um, Bitcoin was very, um, looked at very skeptically. It was looked at as uh, something that you used on Silk Road to buy drugs. It was like the Mt. Gox hack, you know, was the thing that people knew about. It was, you know, about hackers and thieves, basically. That was kind of, you know, 
the way that the organization as a whole, like Bloomberg, the financial part of Bloomberg was very skeptical of it. So they didn't want to touch crypto in a business sense for a long time. And I have, I kept trying to get them to like say, you know, we should have pricing for Bitcoin and Ether on the terminal. We should have this and that. There's all this data. And it took them many years, to be honest, um, before they came around. It wasn't until like the 2017 sort of, you know, uh, where Bitcoin topped 20,000 and, and ETH was 1400 and, you know, everybody was talking about it all of a sudden. And I think that kind of turned the tide for the higher ups of Bloomberg as an organization. So in regards to the ETH DAO hack, that's something you had just uh, briefly touched on. But I think a lot of our audience may not actually know the details of what went on there. While it is widely known as far as like a term, people hear about the, the, the ETH DAO hack. Unless you were around or have done your, your history, you may not really know what that means. So would you be able to give us even just a Coles Notes version of sort of what played out and what that was all about? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I love it. This must be a Canadian thing, Cole's Notes, because in the U.S. it's Cliff Notes. So I don't know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if they're brothers Probably or is, what's yeah. going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, yeah. So a real high-level version is the DAO was this thing. It's like in venture capital, uh, you have a firm that's got a lot of money. And as a, you go out as a startup to that firm and you pitch them your idea and you say, I want to do... XYZ and blockchain, and they like your idea. They're like, okay, here's a $5 million check. Go make your idea and we'll check in with you along the way. The DAO was a way to decentralize that. And the idea was let's have a contract where you can buy into it and invest into the contract with your Ether and you get some tokens in return. And now we've got a big pot of Ether where projects can come to the DAO and say, here's my idea. And the token holders will vote on that idea. And if the vote passes, then that project will get some of that ether to go away and build their startup, right? To, to code and to build the infrastructure they need for it. So they ended up raising $150 million worth of ETH in this DAO in, in like six weeks time in 2016, which was way more than anyone thought was going to happen. The founders of it thought it might be 5 million tops, maybe 10 if they got lucky, $150 million. So... The fundraising, fundraising at, uh, time closes, but this is denominated in Ether, which is a currency and it's going up and down in value, right? So as Ether goes up in price, the amount of value in the Dow goes up. So in about another month, it had reached $250 million. So you got a quarter of a billion dollars of Ether sitting in the smart contracts on the blockchain and it gets hacked. And it's like a really sophisticated hack. It's really beautifully done. And you can't do anything about it because the contract is live on the blockchain. You can't just flip a switch and turn it off. So people have to just watch as the money just gets siphoned out of the DAO. So about $55 million is stolen. Uh, the, the hacker is, to my knowledge, you know, pretty much, there's a few reports out there, but I think he's still pretty much unknown, him or they or whoever it was. Um, and what it did was it, forced the Ethereum community into a really difficult debate about whether they should allow the hack to uh, stand or whether they should do something about changing the history of the blockchain to make it as though the hack never happened, which is something that you can do in blockchain. It's kind of like we're definitely in the science fiction territory here. Um, but 
So that it was put to a community vote and everyone uh, in the Ethereum community had a chance to vote on this and they voted to change the history. So there was an upgrade to Ethereum. It was called a hard fork and that hard fork changed the code so that it made it so that uh, the, the hack and the bug in the DAO was changed. So now the DAO existed after the upgrade, but it existed so that if you had those tokens that I mentioned, you could go and give your tokens back to the contract and it, you'd get your ether back. So it was like nobody got their money stolen. Um, and so that's the very high level. If you guys want to get into it more, there's a lot more on the surface. But um, I think, you know, we were talking about maxis and that was a huge debate. Uh, and the Bitcoin world hated the idea that Ethereum was going to change the history of their blockchain because that was supposed to be forbidden. You know, that's one thing that you hear about blockchain is that it's immutable. It's like a record that is meant to never be changed because if you can start changing the history, then all the future transactions get thrown into doubt. You know, it's gotta be like rock solid, but it was a, a vote by the entire community. And, you know, they decided that, that was the right thing to do for Ethereum. Yeah, I, while I don't want to stay on this subject for too long, I would love to get your take on some of those repercussions that came after the DAO hack and then uh, the subsequent hard fork and everything that played out thereafter. Yeah, I think um, in the big picture, I don't think there were many negative repercussions for Ethereum uh, from the DAO and, and how they handled the situation. It certainly didn't hurt them. Going into 2017, uh, when the ICO boom was about to, you know, make everything go crazy. Uh, and Ethereum has continued to be, you know, huge blockchain. It's the number two token out there after Bitcoin. It's the most used blockchain by, by user numbers. Um, but, you know, it was a, a perilous moment in their history. And I think a lot of people weren't sure that they were going to survive this, this very public, you know, theft and a very public debate about how to move forward after it. Um, I think that there was a lot of, a lot of strong opinions in the Ethereum community uh, at that time. It certainly wasn't, uh, everybody was in favor of the hard fork, you know, a lot of prominent people came out against it, but I guess, you know, I think it was just so early in the Ethereum, like, history and it was important to a lot of folks and let's not forget pretty much everyone in ethereum at that point had some of their money in the, the dow and it might have been stolen you know so they wanted to get their money back and so there was definitely also some personal sort of motives i think behind with the choice to to make that vote uh but you know except for maybe some public relations or pr you know sort of like some of the way it looked at the time and the way that some people can still criticize it. I, I don't really think besides that, that there were many serious repercussions from it. I think that the community moved on and has shown that they are flexible and are willing to make changes when they're necessary. So Ethereum has a very interesting backstory, which you've written about. And I'm curious in regards to like the founders of Ethereum and some of the stories that you got to learn about during your research process for your book, you know, what stood out and what were some of those aspects of your process that were sort of the most interesting for you during that time? 
One thing that I, I came away from the reporting on the book that I did not expect going in was that um, I was able to, I think I created a really interesting picture of Vitalik Buterin, the inventor of Ethereum. Like I, I went to his high school, I interviewed his, his English teacher and his you know, math teacher and the principal of the school. And he was like, you know, we all considered him a genius and he's, he's an amazing, you know, intellectual mind. But it's not just like computer science and blockchain where he's really good. He was crushing it in, in Greek and Latin and chemistry, calculus, you know, all of the subjects. He was the valedictorian of this um, uh, very, it was a gifted high school for students in Toronto. Uh, and he, so I, I kind of came away with that with a real bit of a newfound respect for him in terms of like, he's really uh, a bit of a Renaissance man. You know, he can, he did, he did it all. And he also just shared a lot of his time with me. Uh, I interviewed him probably like a dozen times, at least for an hour at each time. So, you know, I had 13, 14 hours of interviews with him, um, always in person for the book. Like we met all over the world because he's just traveling everywhere. And, but, he, and then he very generously shared some emails that he was writing at the time when he was coming up with Ethereum as he was traveling around in Europe and he was writing home to his parents and friends and, you know, they were pretty vulnerable emails. He was, he would, you know, he admitted to being, you know, lonely and not sure what he was doing and confused, but also really excited and, you know, happy to be out in the world. So I just, um, I was really, you know, I came away really impressed with him and I think that helped me create a real three-dimensional profile of Vitalik as a person, not just as the creator of this technology. Um, some of the other stuff that, you know, the, and then that process is, is, I think what helped me is, and I mentioned with Vitalik, like what I would do is I'd talk to somebody for an hour and interview that I'm in a it. And then I'd like, you know, I kind of stop and I'm like, okay, that's great. Cause I kind of start flagging after an hour and my concentration kind of lapses. So I say, thank you. And then, I try to set up the next interview with the person. And then in the meantime, I go back over that interview and I go back over all the notes and I'm like, oh, this was an interesting thing that was said, but I didn't follow up. So I need to follow up. And by doing that over and over with people, you know, you really get a really great uh, layered explanation or a layered history of what that person was doing at the time and, and how they were feeling. And it just really, I think, helped me get a ton of information that I knew, like when I was done, I had like this pile of information. I'm like, all I have to do is dig through this pile and create my book because it's all there. You know, the only thing I have to do now is pick the right parts and put them together. So that, that's just my own technique. I know other people like to go for like four hours and just try to do everything with somebody, but I just, I personally don't have the energy for that. I just need to kind of keep my focus a little sharper. Ethereum's story has been written by a few different off authors. We've had Cami Russo on the podcast in the past. My question is, what is the relationship like between, I mean, she's a former Bloomberg reporter as well, but between some of the, you and the author community writing Ethereum's story, is it, I mean, is there a level of competition there or is there a general mutual respect for each other's takes or, I mean, is there any controversy? <laughs> what are the thoughts there? Um, not much controversy that I know of. I think there is a sort of a little bit of a professional competition, you know, mm -hmm. because it's a great story and, and it, you know, honestly, there, it is like one story, you know, it's like you've, 
talk to the same people, you're going to kind of come out with the same story. So um, I guess it just depends on how you tell it uh, then at the end of the day. Um, I, I think, uh, I, yeah, I, I know I knew Camilla from when she was at Bloomberg. I, I remember her getting onto the, the crypto beat and, you know, starting to cover Ethereum and, and then going off and doing her book. Um, so I think, you know, everyone has their own different methods. And I think, you know, I'm just happy with what I was able to do with out of the ether. I was very proud of it and it was the most fun I've ever had in my career. And so, um, you know, that's just kind of how I like to, to think about of that in terms of the competing books that are out there. And since you wrote the book, obviously a lot has transpired. This whole industry moves at a million miles an hour. Uh, you know, one thing uh, it's kind of like, even if we talk about the ETH DAO hack, I mean, big news at the time, but a few months later, no one was probably even thinking about it anymore. You know, that's how it goes uh, in this industry. And yep. I'm curious, though, with Ethereum in particular, you know, a lot has changed. And what are your thoughts on the evolution of uh, where it started to, to where it is today with, um, you know, all of the improvements in their technology, um, some of their merges, you know, proof of stake, all that stuff? Yeah, I um, I think that I, on the whole, I've been very impressed with the um, Ethereum core developer community. I bet those are the folks that are basically, you know, steering the ship and making these upgrades. Um, they've never really been on time with things. You know, that goes back to the crowd sale for Ether and, and all that stuff. There's always been, it's always been delayed, but um, they've always delivered on what they said they would. Uh, the merge is a great example of that. But I think um, a little more specifically, like going back, you know, the, the DAO was a, a really, I think it's a still a very interesting idea and, and shows the potential of what these decentralized systems can be used for. I think it was a little bit before its time. Um, but that, that has always continued because if you think about the initial coin offering craze in 2017, that's like taking a very important banking system function, which is raising capital for your business, right? For your startup or sort of to, you know, to keep operations going with money. And prior to this, you always had to go to a bank or for a loan or to a venture capital fund or a private equity or some, some place like that, where it's a centralized um, authority, you can say no. With the ICO innovation, you're now going out to the world and saying, hey, here's my coin. This is my idea. I want to sell you my coin so you can invest in my idea and I can make this real. And it's now it's peer to peer. It's decentralized. It's, it's very much democratizing the whole way that you can raise funds for your business. That, so that's amazing. Of course, there were a million scams and, and, you know, people lost a lot of money, but it doesn't take away from the fact that this very core banking function was now take, taken and remade in the web three sort of peer to peer fashion, right? Then you, then you look at collateralized lending and, and the credit, the crypto credit community that, that also emerged a few years later. That's another huge part of the traditional financial world where you need to go get a loan from a bank or from, you know, somewhere. Now, if you had, uh, you know, Ether or Bitcoin as collateral, you could pledge that and get a loan so that you could not have to sell your crypto to like pay the rent or to, you know, fund your business or, or other ways that you could use cryptocurrency 
in credit, uh, you know, to earn interest and, and things like that. So once again, a lot of things went wrong and a lot of crypto credit companies are now gone because they were uh, not transparent with what they were doing with the money. And they were, you know, kind of running afoul, I think, of the idea in crypto that, that transparency is important and that you should always be, you know, it's an open source kind of public blockchain idea. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that, that that's another huge area of banking lending that's now been remade in a peer-to-peer decentralized fashion. So now we're seeing that today with art, with the NFT market and how artists are now, um, you know, connecting directly with their collectors or their fans and selling things without the need of the gallery. Music is, is starting to, to experiment with this in the same way where artists and musicians can go directly to their fans and sell them NFTs that might give them access to special events or, you know, uh, like merchandise that you can't get anywhere else. And so all these different industries, the parts of our culture are coming to this and, and seeing that it might be a solution to the problems they've had for a long time. And I, I think that's really amazing. And it's a little bit slow going and people are wary of it because when, you know, like last year, I just wrote, you know, 2022, did its best to destroy an entire industry's reputation. You know, like, like it was really bad for crypto and all the stuff that happened, you know, culminating with FTX and just the, the massive fraud that that was. And so that that's tough, you know, that's a hard thing to bounce back from. But I think it's similar to um, like the internet or AI today, blockchain, it's about the technology and the technology is going to endure and people are going to find novel uses for this technology, just like I've been describing. And so that's the thing that keeps me going. And I, I, I find that that is the evolution of Ethereum that I find really fascinating. You touched there on on NFTs. And I had mentioned earlier in the interview, the, the conversation you had with Pomp back in 2020. Another interesting thing from that interview is that you you talked about NFTs and this was pre-NFT kind of craze and you specifically mentioned CryptoKitties and you yeah. joke that sometimes people like to, to shit on CryptoKitties or like that, but you were saying it's a really important concept and that like essentially you, you kind of predicted the future the way you responded to that. So my question is, you know, did you even at that point in time imagine how crazy of an explosion nfts would have in 2021 not just in value but in terms of like all of the projects popping up and some of the real use cases like did that surprise you yeah that did i wish i you know i wish i could say no i was totally on top of it and <laughs> i was uh you know in there with the first uh you know crypto punks or, or bored apes but i wasn't um but so yeah just I mean, I think people really kind of blew the, the lid off the market, right? When he sold a thousand and one days for $69 million, right? And you all of a sudden had Sotheby's and Christie's and, all, and these, you know, venerable auction houses getting involved. Um, it, so that definitely took me by surprise. I did not see that coming where you would have um, not only just famous artists, but just a project like Board Ape Yacht Club where, you know, it was just something cool that people liked. And, you know, Board Ape was really smart in giving you the IP rights to that NFT. And you could, you know, take that ape 
and create a whole world around that ape. And like, you know, so that was really smart because a lot of NFT projects weren't doing that. But going back to my point in 2020, what I, you know, it didn't surprise me because for anyone who actually understood what an NFT meant and, and that digital scarcity was now a thing was, you know, that's a huge leap. And I, I should have mentioned that before, like with the ICO and credit, crypto credit world, NFTs and creating digital scarcity for the first time, because now the digital file can be, um, you know, the provenance can be checked on a blockchain. And so you know that it's, it's valid. That's, that's a huge, um, huge leap forward. And so I, I, um, yeah, I, I, I still, I stand by that. And I, I still think that, you know, that's how I try to explain it to people who, um, you know, talk about right clicking on a JPEG. Um, but sometimes, you know, people don't want to hear it. Can you tell us a little bit about Decentral, how that idea came about, what that's all about? Yeah. So my book had come out and, and uh, it, uh, I don't know, been out for about six months or something. And, and this guy gets in touch with me out of the blue. His name's Neil Berkeley. Uh, he's a documentary filmmaker. Uh, and he read my book and he, he loved it. He had been red-pilled on crypto not too long before that. And he wanted to like option the book to make it into a documentary. And so we started talking, um, I looked him up and he had done an amazing documentary about Gilbert Gottfried. Uh, he had done another great documentary about Dan Harmon, who was the guy who created uh, community, created Rick and Morty. Um, and so like, he, uh, you know, these are all like things that I love. And so I was like, oh, you know, really impressed with him. But we both sort of had this idea about crypto and about the people and how we tell stories about people like he was doing it in the medium of film and I was doing it like on the page. But we kind of treat our characters the same way and with, you know, a lot of respect and like trying to get and make them into three-dimensional human beings. And we, as we just kept talking about crypto, you know, we both realized that we didn't feel like there was enough of that storytelling in the space. And it was a lot of times it was always about the tech. Um, and you get lost and what gets lost is the, pe the people who are actually making that real. And so we sort of like took that as our call and, and said, Hey, why don't we just start our own media company and focus on the people and telling stories about the folks who are making this real. And so I was at that point already sort of looking for my next step after Bloomberg, um, you know, honestly, some <coughs> People I've been working with for 15 years, I've been let go. And, you know, Bloomberg is the kind of place where when you get to a certain seniority in, in recording, you know, it, it's not, uh, it, it's possible that they're just going to one day say, you know, thanks, but you're, you're out. <laughs> yeah. Because they can hire two reporters for the, the salary you're making. And, and, you know, so I, I kind of read the writing on the wall and, also just wanted to do something new and wanted to like challenge myself and take a risk because I am, I don't feel like I had done that for a long time. And so we just took the leap and we've been doing it. Um, we went live in October of 2021. And so, you know, about a year and a half now. And uh, we're just, yeah, trying to humanize the space and, and tell the, because like, you guys know this, everyone you all, touch in crypto is fascinating. You know, their backstories are crazy and they're always weird and smart and funny <laughs> and they come from all walks of life. And it's like, that's what you are. You know, you, those are the characters you want to write about and the characters to populate your stories. So, you know, 
that's like the well here is is like bottomless and and that's what we're trying to tap into it's super relatable i mean you know it obviously we can't get into the documentary style depth through a long form podcast but it's one of the reasons we like to always start the interviews with with the human story of like finding out like who this person is initially and then sure let's dive into the technical topic and try to make it more digestible um, yeah. so i love that you're taking that route but but the question is you know many of the crypto characters who are out there amongst their quirks and all that kind of thing, they do have good intentions, but there are those few who, who definitely don't. They have, they have selfish, they have different intentions as well. Is the goal to kind of tell the stories of, of everyone, like not just the people who maybe are focusing on building for the better, but also kind of highlighting some of those people who maybe had more of a selfish intent? Well, I mean, if you can get me Sam Bankman free, I'll definitely talk to him. <laughs> um, that's what, that's that everybody's picturing when that, Wade's yeah, asking yeah. that question. <laughs> yeah, no, um, no, we're we're not like I'll. I want to tell all of the stories, you know. Like I, we're not trying to um, uh, to shade it, but it is difficult when, uh, as you guys also probably know, a lot of crypto projects are very insular. There might be, you know, there might be four, three or four or five people who are really important to the project and. And they might be hard to get to, you know, they might not want to talk to the pastor. They might, you know, might not know where they are. Uh, like it's, it's very different than traditional reporting. And so even when I was at Bloomberg, I found this challenging was um, just finding the right people and, and getting them to talk to me, you know, like even in an off the record basis, because uh, I can help form a relationship. But um, so it's not like I, I, don't want to write about the people that are scamming or, or maybe in it for the wrong reasons. It's just that what, what's it, why would they want to talk to me? It's the problem. Right. You know, it's, it's like, and you can only ask, you know, you, you, I can't force these folks to, to talk to me. Um, we can of course write about what they're doing in other ways, but, um, and, and we've done that. It's just that like, you know, I would love to get Gary Gensler, you know, uh, for an interview. I, I know him. I used to cover him when he was at the CFTC and I've, you know, he, he just won't call me back anymore. You know, he's just totally shut off. And so, so that, yeah, it, it, you're, you're getting at a good point and it is a frustration because it's easy to write about a new project that's just getting started and hasn't really been tested because the founders want to talk about their project. Right. And so, those tend to be the ones that get more attention because the people are willing to sit down with you and explain what they're doing and be interviewed and all that stuff. Whereas the folks that are rubbing you on, you know, something, uh, <laughs> have no, no reason to talk and, and are probably very difficult to find in the first place. So it, it is a frustration of mine, uh, but that's just sort of the reality. Yeah. Yeah. It's easier to talk about, the technology and the projects in the space, because obviously that's marketing for those projects. But when it comes to the people who build those projects, it is just by nature um, one of these spaces where a lot of people, uh, I mean, some of some, a lot of the time they even are anonymous. So you might not even know who they are. And if they're not anonymous, they still might want to keep their privacy to themselves. So you really got to find like that, you know, PR front facing person. And that's not always easy to come by in this area. Yeah, totally yeah. agree. 
Yeah. Um, so something I wanted to ask about moving into current events a little bit is, uh, and I'm not sure if you heard this, I think this is relatively new news just the last couple of days, but apparently, and I don't know all the legitimacy or, or information around this, but FTX uh, has supposedly reclaimed billions of, of uh, funds and there's some speculation around users getting money back. Have you heard about that? And, and what are your thoughts? Uh, I haven't heard about that specifically. Um, I do know that they're obviously in a very uh, structured bankruptcy proceeding and, and they've got an interim, you know, CEO. So the, uh, what I do know from just general bankruptcy um, is nothing is going to go anywhere without the court approving it and mm -hmm. going through that process. It's not like FTX has agency anymore. You know, right. they're basically a ward of the, of the state is a way of thinking of it. And so I know people are anxious about that. Um, let's, if we could just put a PSA in here, like I always try to do, please don't leave your money on an exchange. There's no reason to put your coin, leave your coins there, get your own wallet, get a, get a, a software wallet or a hardware wallet, take it off exchange so that you're in control of it and you don't get into a situation like this. Uh, I've, I've been saying that for years and it's amazing that number of sophisticated people who still, you know, had money at, at FTX. And, and so anyway, but I just want to say that because I always try to make sure people um, take this, take the responsibility, you know, seriously for this. Um, but back to the, you know, the court proceeding, I know people want to get their money back and they're anxious, but that is going to be a process that's worked out through the courts and it's going to be, you know, very deliberate. Matt, another thing, speaking about current events that we'd love to get your take on, we're north of the border, but of course, uh, big news last month with regard to to some of the banks, Silicon Valley Bank, and and of course, there was Balaji's big $1 million bet on Bitcoin. Can you kind of, we haven't had the luxury of having a guest on and kind of just breaking down that situation a little bit. And and you're somebody who's, you know, you've got that experience covering the traditional system, covering crypto. Kind of what's your take on where things are at at the moment? Yeah, I think the, the three banks, so they all start with an S, so it gets a little confusing. Um, Silvergate was the first, I believe, to go down. That uh, was a bank in San Diego. And they, they were early in the game to... Um, allowing crypto companies to, it, what, they, what they had was a, a payments network. It was an internal payments network where you could have an account at Silvergate in dollars. And then they were allowing you to connect that account to um, exchanges and uh, things like Tether. And so you could, you know, through various ways, um, you know, get access as a U.S. corporation um, or business to the crypto services, you know, that uh, are sometimes hard to do. It's, it's hard that they're not an on-ramp for dollars, right? Like you have to be in crypto already to access them. But what Silvergate did was it allowed you to start with your bank account in dollars and then migrate that over to crypto. Um, I, in that, in their case, uh, it, it seems like it was just a sort of like good old fashioned bank run. Uh, you know, it just seems like people in Silicon Valley started whispering about Silvergate and that you should get your money out. And then there were a few senators like Senator Warren and some others that, that wrote some letters to them, uh, you know, questioning their risk management practices, which in my opinion, and I've written about this 
and our newsletter, you know, is crazy. Like you, you really, the one thing you should not be doing, uh, if, if there's a potential for bank rent is undermining confidence in that bank, because it's only going to make the bank rent more likely. Mm. So that, you know, but of course it failed, you know, nobody got hurt. It, I think everything was smooth and, you know, it just wind, it just wound down, which, you know, I think is a good thing. It shows that the system there in, in place for when banks fail worked in this case. Um, let's see, Silicon Valley Bank was a little bit different because it was, you know, it was holding money, you know, for a lot of like tech funds and it had some money from Circle, for example. So, uh, you know, you saw when, when the Silicon Valley Bank started wobbling, Circle's US dollar coin depegged for a little while and then went back up. But, um, you know, I, to be honest, I'm not like super deep into these things right now, but I think uh, the, the main thing here is, I think there's a thread that the US um, from the treasury, the Fed, the SEC, uh, the, I think they have put the word out to banks in the United States that if you're gonna work with crypto companies, you better be careful, you know, and you might wanna think twice about it. And we're gonna, you know, we're going to make it harder for you to do that. And I think it's, it's working. And what I find disappointing about that approach is that it feels very backroom to me. It feels like something that was agreed upon, uh, out of the public view without the, the potential for the public to comment on this or to make its case that, you know, why shouldn't crypto get banking services? What is, you know, what's your reason for that? Uh, is it because people lose money? Well, people lose money all the time in the financial world. You know, I can't list of financial frauds that has occurred, um, you know, as long as you're armed and yet the banking system is there for those companies. So why is crypto different? Um, and the, the other one you asked about was not the banks, but the- um, Balaji's bet, the $1 oh, million. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this one made me laugh. Uh, you know, as this is like when, as a reporter, there's two sides of me. It's like, there's the rational side of me. Like, this is complete bullshit. What is he <laughs> thinking? There's absolutely no way Bitcoin's going to a million dollars in 90 days. And then there's the other side of me. It's like, well, oh, this is a great story. Who doesn't want to read about this crazy bet? And so, you know, it's kind of like the angel and devil on my shoulder. Um, I, I feel like he wanted to change the narrative. Uh, I think he wanted to, um, you know, get a lot of attention and he certainly did. Uh, I don't think, and I think he's willing to pay a million dollars for it. And, you know, to be honest, I think that's a drop in the bucket for him. So, um, I don't think this is ever a serious idea of his. I, I, I know a lot of people in, in the crypto think that the U S dollar is going to hyperinflate and go away. I, you know, I, that's not happening. I, I don't see that ever happening. I think there is a a good chance that the U.S. dollar might not be the reserve currency of the world in a while. You know, we're seeing a lot of moves owned by China and, uh, you know, with the dollar and its link to the global oil market is, uh, you know, that's what's been, it's what's established the dollar as the global reserve currency because you can only buy oil in dollars. Uh, but I do believe that there are certain Middle Eastern countries that are now selling oil for um, Chinese yuan. I, I might be wrong about that, but I think that's happening. So that's like kind of a chink in the armor for the dollar. But I don't 
I don't believe the U.S. dollar is going away. I do, you know, inflation is a problem, but there are a lot of causes for that, for inflation that we're seeing. But, um, you know, so that's one of the more wacky, I think, corners of the crypto market is this idea that crypto is going to replace the current systems uh, when they fail. I don't think that's happening. I think what they are doing is creating an alternative to the current systems that I believe are still going to continue to operate. And there's just going to be an alternative that's distributed and peer-to-peer like we've been talking about. So we're getting to the end of this and we've had a lot of great conversations around you know, where your introduction to crypto was and a lot around the technology and really the evolution of the space. But I'm curious, and you, you kind of actually were just talking a little bit about the future, but I'd like to dive in a little more and and ask you, what are some bold predictions you have for the space in the coming years? I think it's, the. I think what's really been uh interesting and invigorating in crypto is with the NFT craze that brought in a whole new group of people in, in the form of digital and visual artists. And these are really interesting, creative folks that were not really part of the conversation in the crypto world before that, but now they are. And I think it's made the whole conversation much richer, much more interesting. Um, you know, who doesn't love a wacky artist, right? And now they're like getting rich off of NFTs and they can like sustain themselves and not have to have a day job. And that's great. Um, so then uh, moving that forward, we're starting to see this in music as well. And, and we've been writing a lot of essential about how artists are trying to reimagine the like uh, record label artist relationship trying to get rid of like the huge uh, disparity in power that exists there where the record label gives you some huge loan and then you have to pay them back over the years and you never end up making any money off of your music sales and that forces you to go tour and then COVID hits and you can't tour and you're like, oh my God, what are we doing? And so in a way, all of those factors are really driving like a lot of musicians to think about different ways of doing what they love. Um, and I think that's only going to continue uh, in, in to other parts of our culture. Uh, I, I wish I could make a bold prediction about what's next, but I just find, like I said before, when people like, and as it spreads now, you know, because now that there was visual artists and digital artists that are making their living, um, through their art, that starts to spread. And then musicians get word of it and they start talking about it. And then it might spread to architecture or other, you know, things. And it just, that's what I find really interesting. So that other industries and other cultural, um, you know, mainstays can get introduced to this world and try to find solutions for the problems that they have. And I think that's what's exciting to me about it. And I, I don't see that going away. Um, it's, it's not going away. I mean, I know a lot of people still think it's a scam and a Ponzi scheme, but you know, they're deluding themselves and whoever's listening to them. So I don't really have time for them anymore. Yeah, totally. It, it's such a good point. I remember when we launched this podcast back in late 2020, we, uh, did not imagine we would be interviewing musicians and yeah. artists and and really over the last especially year that's probably been like 50 percent of our interviews or so and it's kind of changed the narrative so it's such a good point it's really kind of brought a richer experience to the community yeah. matt this yeah oh sorry go ahead 
Uh, yeah, I was just gonna say it's like you know adding you know you don't want the gene pool to be you know too too narrow and like bringing on all these new folks is just really strengthening I think the entire community. 100%. Matt, this has been an awesome conversation. We like to end every episode of Show Me the Crypto with the same three questions we ask every single guest. It's a little segment we call You Had Me at Crypto. Ulf is going to ask you those questions. All right. You ready, Matt? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. The first question, who's your favorite person to follow in the crypto space? I'm going to go with Ryan Selkis. Do you know who mm, he is? Yeah. The founder of Masari. Mm. Uh, he is super smart, uh, very ambitious, works his ass off and he, the gloves have come off with him and like the way he's going after Gary Gensler at the SEC and just the general way that regulators are treating crypto right now and the banking system, I think is really important. It's not something I've chosen to do in my own Twitter usage, but I'm glad somebody like Ryan is doing it and. I would highly recommend you guys, your listeners, follow him. He's at, uh, it's at 2BitIdiot, I think is his Twitter handle. Um, so yeah, he's just, he's just really great uh, on a lot of different levels. And sorry, is doing amazing things um, in terms of research and, you know, analytics and, and all sorts of stuff for crypto. Love it. Second question, what will the price of Bitcoin be 10 years from now? <laughs> This is the NFA section, right? Of course. Yeah. Not oh, financial. yeah. Not financial. We're going 10 years out. If anybody took this as financial <laughs> advice, that would be insane. All right. I, I'm going to just, I'm going to say 50,000. I think if Bitcoin in 10 years is at 50,000, that would be very good for, for everyone. I, I'm not, you know, I might be completely wrong here. I am not one of those per people who thinks it's going to a million or even, you know, 500 or 1,000 or whatever. I just... If it's got a value like that, that can sustain itself, I think that would be fantastic for Bitcoin. So just to dive into that a little bit, because we've seen Bitcoin over 50,000 by quite quite a margin. Uh, is your thoughts there that it will sort of stabilize and like, like you know, maybe a little higher, a little lower, but sort of eventually sit around there? I think that would be great. Don't you? I mean, one of the things that's, that's a knock on crypto is the volatility and right. not wanting to hold, like if you're selling products for Bitcoin, you probably don't want to hold that Bitcoin you just earned because it go down, right? So you need to sell it. But if it was, if, if it matured and there was more stability in the price, I think that would be a good thing. Hmm. Cool. All right. And the third question, what is the most underrated project in the crypto space? All right. I'm going to be a little controversial here and say Tether. And I am going to be, yeah, controversial because in my past reporting, I did a lot of, you know, questioning reports on whether Tether had the money it claimed to have. And I broke the story that they've been subpoenaed by the CFTC back in 2017 or whenever that was. Um, And so I was very skeptical of, of Tether and how they were operating and, you know, whether they were just making stuff up, you know, and, and so... I think over the years though, and, and this is something that has brought me around to this conclusion is when everything was going bad in 2022 last year and stable coins like Terra Luna were, were failing and the crypto credit companies were going down and, you know, all, all sorts of things, Tether was like there and they were like, nothing happened to them and, and they 
are now claiming to have $80 billion, you know, in, in their reserves. And so with all the, the sort of like upheavals and craziness that's happened, um, I think the fact that Tether has still been there and, you know, it's, it, it, whether you believe them or not, or what it, it's been a really important part of the crypto world for a long time, because as we touched on for a long time, banks wouldn't service you and you couldn't get dollars into crypto. So Tether became like the, the, the quasi US dollar in the crypto space. And I just think the fact that it's whether all the storms we've seen, uh, it is it certainly makes it under, uh, under appreciated or undervalued in, in my opinion. You did some research, didn't you, a couple of years ago about um, the Tether reserves uh, because you were skeptical and then came across actually from what you found, which at the <coughs> time was, I think, was the most robust findings or documents that had been released that you were surprisingly like, oh, or you were surprised to see that they did have the level of reserves that they claimed to. Yeah, yeah, I had, I had finally gotten through to somebody who was a good source and they were able to help me you know, and, and point to, you know, here's some bank records and here's, you know, on the blockchain and you can see when new tethers issued and you can match it up. It's like, oh, we got this deposit of $100,000 and, you know, two minutes later, 100,000 tethers were printed and you can see it right here on Etherscan or whatever it was. So yeah, that, that did, um, it, it, yeah, it surprised me and, and it just made me, you know, uh, it's just it's 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 important to like just follow the story and not have preconceptions about what's going on and just do your best to try to find people who can help you with being out know, the truth and so that was uh something that you know and at the same time you know the cftc didn't really come after them about slaughter manipulation it was about you know bookkeeping stuff and and i think some some things that they have done but as I was told during that reporting period, CFTC was shown all the same things that I was shown. You know, they, they gave them that brief thing you wanted and they never shut them down. They never, you know, so it's like the narrative is out there that tethers may be a scam, but you know, if you, if you look into it and you do your research, you know, it's hard to kind of feel that that might be true. Matt, this has been a great conversation. One thing I mentioned before we hit the record button is that you're just such a wealth of knowledge in this space. I mean, you wrote the book, the story of Ethereum, but also just your your knowledge on that whole industry in general is it's a treat being able to talk to you and tap into that. Thank you so much for joining Alf and I on this episode of Show Me the Crypto. Yeah, thank you, Wade. And thank you, Alf. It's been really fun. I really enjoyed this. And thanks for uh, all the kind words. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Show Me the Crypto. Please make sure to subscribe as well as rate and review this podcast.